Hello and welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Back in 1999, Naomi Klein published a book called No Logos. Wait, was it Naomi Klein or Naomi Wolf? No, it was Naomi Klein. And it was an incredible book, and all of her books are incredible. It was the first one that I had read. It made the case that there had been a shift in corporate culture, um, especially in the United States, away from an emphasis on the production of material goods and more toward branding and marketing. In other words, that corporations had kind of dematerialized themselves, making themselves into a branding mechanism rather than a directly producing company. And they would basically... um, outsource and offshore the actual messy material stuff, including like employees, and instead focus on the more kind of ethereal and non-material aspects of uh, branding and marketing. Actually, even though the book wasn't about internet culture and internet corporate culture, it was very prescient in this regard. If you think about the largest companies that we have in our economies today are those that deal in like non-material e-goods um, that you know don't directly employ dri- drivers but merely have an app uh, that connects uh, people who need a ride with those who can provide it but the company itself is kind of hovers above that transaction. Well the funny thing is that something similar happened to the Roman Empire at least the Roman Empire as it was understood in the Western Middle Ages. So we think of the Roman Empire, (laughs) at least (laughs) those of us who apparently think about it several times a day, as a territory, a material territory, a landscape, a set of people, like those people back then who lived there, whether it was in Rome or whether it was in the Roman Empire as a whole, It's a physical thing. It fell. It fell physically. It was there in one moment, and it was gone the next. But by the time we get to the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, especially in the High Middle Ages and later, there's a very different idea uh, that had emerged about what the Roman Empire was. And it wasn't this material, physical, um, you know, human entity. It was a more abstract mantle, an idea, a title that could be passed from one people to another, from one place to another. So in this conception, the Roman Empire had once existed, uh, where we think of the Roman Empire once was, and the mantle of it, the idea of it, the logo, the brand, had kind of migrated to Constantinople, and from there it had been transferred, like the deed to a company, to the Franks and Charlemagne, and then it had it's kind of been re- revived later by the Saxons and other um, others in Germany, and it, it got kind of passed around from one um, uh, elected emperor to another, from different regions, different families, different dynasties. In that context, it was kind of meaningless to ask, well, what territory do you rule, let's say, the city of Rome that gives you that title, or 
what people, what Romans exactly do you rule that makes you the emperor of the Romans? No, it had become a dematerialized title. Not in the East, not in Constantinople. In Constantinople, there is still a very firm conception of a Roman territory, Romania, and a Roman people who were talked about all the time. But in the West, uh, the idea had sort of transvalued itself uh, in this very distinctive way. Now, this had one curious implication. It meant that for many people in the Western Middle Ages, there was no sense that the Roman Empire had fallen exactly. Now, I have found Western medieval writers who do talk about the fall of the Roman Empire in connection with the barbarian armies that occupied the various provinces. Yes, but that was one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it was that the Roman Empire had existed all along. It had never gone away, it had just moved around. And so there was this continuous history of the Roman Empire from Augustus down to whatever German emperor you were writing under in the 12th century, let's say, or the 14th century. And for a long stretch of that period, the sequence of emperors runs through Constantinople because there was no emperor in the West. Right? So in an odd kind of way, this is a validation of the imperial um, credentials of um, the Eastern Roman Empire in Western eyes, because in order to get to, you know, Conrad the whatever as Roman emperor in direct line of succession from Augustus, you have to go through Constantinople up to, you know, maybe Irene or wherever you put the transfer to the West. So this results in this sense that the Roman Empire never really fell. It was always around, um, and thereby there's this unified sense of a, of a Roman and a Christian political history from antiquity down to the medieval or early modern present. Anyway, after around 800, folks in the West were very reluctant to admit that there was anything Roman going on in the East. That's a long story. We've talked a lot about that. But then 1453 happens, much later. And this now opens some interesting possibilities. Because the Eastern Empire, whatever its identity exactly had been, was now defunct and could be claimed by someone in the West. There had once been an Eastern Roman Empire, or an Eastern Empire, or however you wanted to understand it, and now there were just some barbarian Turks who were occupying that area, but maybe an ambitious monarch in the West could try to reconstitute the Eastern Empire and reunite the whole thing again. My guest today has been working on texts and figures in the 15th and 16th centuries who were thinking along these kinds of lines. He is Nathan Aschenbrenner of Bard College, um, and he's working on a book on this topic. Uh, but I wanted to have this conversation with him because I have also been writing a um, book on the sort of long duration of Western European thought about the Eastern Empire a much, much broader canvas in which these episodes are relatively small, but I wanted to discuss them in detail with someone who, who knows the sources intimately, uh, because in their own moment, these were very fascinating episodes, even if in the long run they didn't result in sort of major, you know, historical changes. Maximilian did not go conquer the Roman Empire. Anyway, some interesting texts were produced along the way, though. 
I would like to add that um, Nathan is, was a co-editor of a volume along with Jake Ransahoff, uh, who was our guest on the topic of blinding in episode 83. Uh, and the two of them produced this wonderful volume of papers on early modern scholarship about Byzantium called The Invention of uh, Byzantium in Early Modern Europe. Um, so this is an area in which uh, Nathan has uh, sort of long experience and deep expertise in the texts. Um, and I wanted to give you a sense of the kind of thinking about the Eastern Empire that was taking place in early modern Europe at the dawn, before we can sort of meaningfully talk about like a, a, a body of scholarship about the Eastern Empire when it's still the object of uh, you know, political claims and imperial ambitions. Okay, enough uh, from me. Uh, let's uh, turn it over to Nathan. Uh, first, uh, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, let's get straight to the discussion. Hello, Nate. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. It's great to be here. So let's talk about empires. Uh, you know, we've got this conventional understanding of empires that they come and they go, and one empire falls and another rises, and the maps change and the colors change on the map and so on. And so we have this fairly conventional view. But there are some very interesting alternatives to that view, especially when it has to do with the Roman Empire, which is kind of like our archetype for imperial fall and so forth. Yeah. And so I, I want you to tell us a little bit about this alternative, which is a Western medieval alternative to the idea of the fall of the Roman Empire that looks very, very, very different. Uh, well, you sketch it for us, and then maybe I'll add some features of it that I find curious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that it might be quite surprising to people who have not read a lot of uh, Western medieval historiography um, to learn that although we talk about 476 as kind of the fall of the Roman Empire, perhaps more... Uh, more circumspectly, the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, in fact, in late antiquity and the Middle Ages, that date wasn't really assigned any particular significance. It wasn't really until I think the uh, the sixth century, right? Marcellinus Comes, um, who even takes note of the fact that something significant had happened in in 476. Um, so in you know, from the 5th century up until the 8th century, the Roman Empire just continued to motor along and uh, the the emperors of the, of the Roman Empire, the rulers of the Roman Empire, lived in Constantinople. Um, so I think what is really significant about the medieval West then is um, the sort of uh, development and deployment of a specific idea that helped... Um, uh, sort of justify and and explain the kind of continuities that uh, that people in the medieval West wanted to imagine the history of the Roman Empire had, and the most important one of those uh, we call the translatio imperii. That's a Latin phrase uh, that sort of woodenly translated means the transfer of empire, but perhaps more accurately is. Uh, translated as the transfer of kingship or the transfer of imperial sovereignty. Um, it's an idea that that kind of emerges out of a mashup of uh, some language in the Hebrew Bible that talks about the way that God sort of um, sort of appoints and deposes kings and kingdoms, 
usually based on how um, pious or amenable to God's will they are. Um, and some other ideas in Latin historiography uh, that imagine world history as seen through kind of a series of like, um, you know, supreme monarchies. And uh, the kind of conventional list would be like the Assyrians and then the Persians and the Greeks, that these are the Greeks after Alexander the Great, and then finally the Romans. And so between the 5th and the 13th century, then this idea gets kind of freighted with some additional baggage and starts to do uh, some additional things. Um, I just mentioned, right, it, it becomes a way to think about history as a series of uh, monarchies. Um, these, so each of those monarchies basically has a kind of special sort of a superabundant authority over the world. And the Romans are kind of the last and, and most mm. important. Um, at some point, the, the kind of lastness of the Roman Empire then gets invested with some apocalyptic tones because there's an idea that the Roman Empire will last until um, the end of the world. Uh, and so it's it's really, you know, it's the the established order that will last until the apocalypse. Um, and then uh, really kind of around the 9th, 10th century uh, and with increasing frequency from then on, um, we get the translatio imperii, the, this transfer of imperial sovereignty, uh, offered as a justification for imperial continuity. That is, you have a new uh, monarch, um, uh, a Frankish monarch, who we call Charlemagne now, um, who's crowned in Rome in the year 800. And kind of in retrospect, people start saying, oh, this is a moment when Roman imperial authority has been taken away from the rulers in Constantinople and invested in these rulers in the West. And it really becomes a kind of sliding doors moment in um, the history of the Western Middle Ages where uh, people in retrospect again say, yes, now this, this kind of long um, you know, succession of Roman emperors, which was being, um, you know, which was being ruled from Constantinople, is now ruled by uh, these various dynasties, Frankish and then German dynasties in uh, Western Europe. That's really useful as an idea uh, because it allows these uh, these Western, basically just Central European monarchs, you know, German kings, um, to claim that they descend from um, the the monarchs, the you know the the temples and triumphs of ancient Rome. Yeah, I want to pick up on some of those ideas first about four seventy six, and this is a footnote. This is a footnote to a footnote. But <laughs> yeah. when I was writing the history and I was pouring through all of these anti Chalcedonian texts, yeah, I came across one, and this is the Syriac translation of John Rufus's Pleuroforia, which. I think is in a French translation. So, and this is like stories about how bad Chalcedonians are. That's that's what it is, right? So it's late fifth century. And I was reading along and it's like one story about Satan after another. <laughs> and in one of them, the anti-Chalcedonian patriarch of Alexandria, Timothy, oh, there were two of them. I can't remember, remember which one of the two. Anyway, but he says, and because the Western empire accepted Chalcedon, that's why they fell. Wow. Okay. And this is like just a couple of years after. <laughs> anyway, uh, side so, note. So, yeah, so we have a new sort of earliest attestation. Yes, of the, that's right. uh, of the yeah, fall. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I, I mentioned that because it, nobody knows about this because obviously 
So you're reading a French translation of a Syriac translation of a Greek text. Anyway, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's the interesting thing about the translatio theory that I want the audience kind of wrap their mind around, which is that when it's in effect, you know, so roughly ninth to 13th century, or well, it I don't know. I'm not sure oh, that yeah. it ever really ends, actually. Yeah, I mean, Jean Baudin, the 16th century is right. still kind of like taking shots at it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, in that time frame, it is entirely possible to believe that the Roman Empire never fell, right? It just kind of relocated from Rome to Constantinople for a while, and then from Constantinople to Aachen, and then to, you know, the Saxons and, and whatever. In other words, the Roman Empire is like this uh, process. It's a mantle that passes from one people to another while maintaining basic continuity in its sovereign authority, right? And now in parallel to this, I have found like Western medieval accounts of the fall of the ancient empire and all that. So these things kind of just exist in this kind of weird juxtaposition, but it's entirely possible to think that, that this mantle has just been traveling around. And I think because of the apocalyptic component that you mentioned, it's different from the ancient sequence of empires. So like the Assyrians are overthrown by the Persians who are overthrown by the Greeks, but it's not like the ancient Roman empire is overthrown. It just kind of moves around, right? No, so, yeah, no, this, it's a great point. And it is, so you can see that the kind of genealogical relationship between these two ideas, but it actually changes, right? Because as yeah. you point out in the ancient world, God gives, uh, you know, a certain people power. And then, you know, when they do a thing that makes him mad, he removes it from them and hands it on to somebody else. But now, because we have the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire is supposed to last until the end of time, right. every subsequent change has to be like, OK, well, it's still the Roman Empire, but it's yeah. just kind of in a different place. You know, the yeah. Browns moved from whatever, Indianapolis to uh, Cleveland or. Yeah. So let me ask you about this, because. Between, you know, Aachen and Constantinople, there's no geographical overlap. There's no linguistic, you know, it's like different peoples, different languages, different places, different cultures. What exactly is being transferred? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, it's it's this kind of like um, numinous abstraction, this idea of uh, sovereignty, but what it really is, is a kind of widely recognized claim to stand in uh, this, this kind of succession of emperors that goes all the way back to antiquity. So in some ways it is really at its, at its, uh, you know, at, at its um, most fundamental level, a kind of genealogical uh, claim, even though it's not sort of bio biological uh, genealogy. And it, is tendentious when we look at it in the 21st century. Um, uh, you know, I would, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the, you know, part of this kind of constellation of ideas is that the, um, the emperors in the West are claiming to be Roman emperors in various formulations because they are crowned in Rome by mm -hmm. the Roman pontiff, the Pope, and sometimes acclaimed by the Roman people. So even though they then, you know, uh, you know, bugger off back to, you know, across the Alps, um, you know, that that they've participated in this 
um, really charged uh, ritual in the city of Rome. The other thing is that, of course, the although their vernacular language is no longer Latin, right? They're they're kind of maintaining this uh, this illusion that they, because it's a kind of Latinate culture, are still um, sort of participants in in the kind of culture of of the Roman Empire, even if that idea of what the Roman Empire is is an essentialization of you know that covers. Um, a lot of different periods. So, yeah, and uh, with the title comes a certain amount of status vis-a-vis -vis other kinds of rulers, right? Like it was a claim to, if not what we would consider sovereign authority, at least a preeminence of status, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I, I think that that's why people bother fighting about it. Um, you know why that? That's why there's fundamentally like an enduring competition over you know, who rules the Roman Empire that lasts basically throughout the Middle Ages. And it's because being Roman is 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 special. Uh, ruling the Romans is special. The Roman Empire has a has a kind of providential mission to be the vehicle for spreading Christianity. It has this apocalyptic role. Uh, the Roman emperor himself is supposed to literally be the guy who goes to Jerusalem and surrenders his <laughs> crown to sort of uh, bring on the apocalypse, which is a good thing in this version of the story. Yeah. Um, so, so it has, you know, even, even if you know, being the Roman emperor doesn't necessarily settle a legal dispute in your uh, favor. Um, you know, it has all of these uh, sort of ideological uh, dimensions and, and a kind of um, a latent legitimacy uh, that it brings that is uh, really desirable in the Middle Ages. Can you give us some examples of writings or theories or texts or just the sort of accessories that go along with this view of a continual Roman Empire in the West. So you're like around a thousand or fourteen hundred or whatever. How would you perform this continuity of the Roman Empire in a German context? How would you show it? What would it look like? Um, yeah, that's that's a really good question. Uh, so one of the places that that you see it is in historical writings of all kinds, whether that's a really kind of um, you know, uh, laconic analytic writings that say, you know, in this year there was an earthquake, in that year, you know, M Matilda died, um, then there was a famine, etc. Um, in those uh, in those accounts, uh, what what we see is that you know the rulers of the Roman Empire are in Constantinople basically until the ninth century. Um, and then in the ninth century, I mean, these accounts rarely, very rarely fail to mention that Charlemagne is crowned by the Pope and that the Roman Empire was transferred, um, you know, from the from the Greeks is usually the term uh, to the Franks or, you know, to the Germans, what have you. Um, in, of course, that, those stories are then fleshed out in longer sort of more discursive histories. Otto Freising in the 12th century is a great example. The, the Chronicle of the Two Cities mm. spends a lot of time on this and, and is a very popular account uh, that is adapted by a number of later uh, medieval authors. But you see it in a lot of other places as well. Um, one of the places that uh, was really striking to me is that in late medieval manuscripts, a lot of times they have these um, fly sheets, so sort of extra pages at the front or the back. Um, oftentimes, those are the only sheets that, that you know, fascicles were bound between. They didn't have boards originally. Mm. And in 
a huge number of these manuscripts, you see just lists of Roman emperors, kind of starting with Julius Caesar or Augustus and kind of going down. Um, I spent a lot of time sort of studying the kind of typologies uh, that, that appear when you look at like a broad number of these. Um, but those lists themselves uh, often testify to the kind of um, enduring power uh, of the this you know this idea of the transfer of imperial authority, the translatio. Yeah, and, you know, I think one of the other things they show is the way that sort of empire and emperors in this world really help structure time. I mean. You know, mm. as you know, when you read medieval accounts, they often say in the reign of so-and-so, right? I mean, it's like nobody, <laughs> very few people are sort of calculating the annus mundi according to the, you know, the Byzantine calendar, the Alexandrian, or or even the incarnation of Christ. I mean, so much of time is kind of experiential and, and, and relative. And so these lists of emperors help uh, sort of establish kind of where we are basically since... Um, the beginning of the Roman Empire, which is also conveniently the the, the birth of Christ. Um, and then I think in, you know, from the 13th century onward, you have a lot of, dis, you know, discussion, argument about the this idea of, of continuity, about the translatio in uh, legal sources, um, particularly uh, these kinds of uh, legal commentaries that are appended to uh, papal letters. Um, what we call glosses. Um, and they, you know, there are some really important papal letters at the beginning of the 13th century that say uh, there was a translation from the Greeks to the Germans. The Pope was the guy who did it. Um, and, you know, that establishes a set of prerogatives for the popes. And so there are a bunch of legal opinions that are written around those in, uh, you know, medieval legal collections um, where we see the same um, same kind of thing. And then in the 15th and 16th century in visual and material culture, we see uh, a, a lot of similar celebrations of the role of Charlemagne as the kind of restorer of um, Roman imperial authority. In oh, yeah. Rome. Aren't there somewhere he like meets Augustus? Oh, boy, that is a good question. I don't know that I've seen that one. I mean, there's all this stuff about, of course, like uh, Charlemagne's like, you know, pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm thinking most specifically in the in the 16th century, uh, Maximilian, who I think we're going to talk about a little yeah. bit later. Um, you know, Maximilian is very into kind of visual galleries of his ancestors. And Charlemagne has, a, you know, a hugely influential role here because, again, he is kind of the the this this moment where Roman imperial authority is kind of like regrafted into the West from the kind of schismatic East. So what is the link between this Western theory of the relocation of Imperium and the Westerners calling the Easterners Greeks specifically. And if the Roman Imperium had been relocated from Constantinople to Western Europe, what kind of a state then was the Eastern Empire in Western view? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I think there are a couple of angles to this. I mean, the first one is nakedly polemical, right? I mean, the insistence that the people who live in the East uh, are Greeks and not Romans is intended to um, undermine their claims to rule the Roman Empire. And uh, in addition, I think that it 
you know, kind of taps into some ancient moral hierarchies between uh, the mm. Romans and Greeks, particularly in Latin, right? Um, it, it, where we, you know, we think about how, you know, the Romans are sort of stout and virtuous and pure and the Greeks are duplicitous. I mean, you know, when Dante puts what he puts uh, Odysseus and Ajax in the, in the Inferno, they're there for being kind of like sneaky and tricky. Um, you know, the, you know, Virgil, right. I, I, I fear the Greeks even when they're bearing gifts. So mm -hmm. there are some, some ancient, um, associations of like Greeks and Romans that are activated by that language. So it does, it does the kind of two things. One, it says these people are sneaky and not to be trusted, not really virtuous. And two, they're not really Romans. And so their claims to rule the Roman empire are artificial. I do think that there's a way in which th that language has like a less pejorative or a less polemical and a more neutral tone, because you see lots of accounts of the translation of empire um, where everybody is not Roman, mm. right? There's just an acknowledgement that the Romans don't rule the Roman empire anymore. So mm -hmm. first it was the Greeks and they were in Constantinople. Then it was the Franks. They were in Akin. Then there's a weird, <laughs> like yeah. there's a, a minor uh, series of this TV show where there are Italians uh, <laughs> under Berengar, then it's the Germans. So in those kinds of narratives, I think it's I think it's fair to wonder whether Greek is doing the same kind of work, like because basically everybody ruling the Roman Empire is not Roman. It doesn't have the same kind of polemical force. Yeah. Um, but certainly in the late Middle Ages, we, we see some like very uh, explicit explanations of how the Byzantines, the Romei, are just. Um, you know, posers, they're not, re you know, they claim to be Romans, they're not real Romans. Um, so and, even if they're uh, Greeks, what does that mean their state was, though? Because they do call it, in the West, they do call it Imperium, I don't know, Constantinopolitanum, yeah. or like whatever. What, what yeah. do they think it was then? Yeah, that's I, that's a great question. And I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that there's kind of a, a a jumble of discordant voices here. I think there are people who say, okay, well, we conventionally call it an empire, but it doesn't have anything to do with the Roman empire anymore. The Roman empire is now in the West. Um, there are people who stop calling it uh, the, the, um, the Roman empire and they start calling it the Constantinopolitan empire, which is- like, Or the Greek it, one sometimes or- Yeah, but then- yeah, Empire of the Greeks, I think, is quite clear. You know, Dietrich of Nimes, he writes, he's in the mm. court of uh, Sigismund, and he, he writes a history of Charlemagne in the end of the 14th century. And he's like, yeah, when Charlemagne is is uh, becomes the emperor, it, you know, the state in Constantinople goes from being the emperor of, empire of the Romans to the empire of the Greeks. So for him, right, that's a polemical move, like this kind of change in, in uh, ethnic terminology. Um when people call it the empire in Constantinople, I think that that really sign signifies the kind of ambivalence and ambiguity. It's not the Roman Empire, but it's not exactly just kind of another kingdom. It's this right. 
other space and people really aren't sure kind of what to do with it. And I think that that, that, uh, that kind of um, uncertainty and ambivalence really comes out in this sort of weird, there's kind of a, a, a weird subreddit here in, in some of these uh, medieval jurists where they're arguing about who is the real Roman emperor. And they're like, oh, this guy in Spain said that the emperor in Constantinople is the real Roman emperor. And other people are like, that's outrageous. I can't even believe you would say that. <laughs> um, so and you can and you can kind of see the way that there's there's a kind of linguistic analog here. Right. Roman in Roman Empire is not just a description of the city. It's like a metonym for for the whole state. And so maybe there are people who see Constantinopolitanum. Uh, in the phrase, um, you know, Constantinopolitan Empire, as as being similar, it's a metonym for this whole kind of imperial state that lives over there. Um, but one thing is very clear, which is that it's not a part of this like very sort of clear and clean kind of succession of emperors that goes from Augustus to whoever is. Yeah. In, you know, yeah. Yeah. It it just has that walk-in part between the fifth century and eight hundred, and yeah, then we know. <laughs> ex exit exit stage. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So you have written some. So a couple of chapters of your book, which thank you for sending those to me. I mean, it's really um, fascinating to read them on these characters in the fifteenth century. We're going to jump ahead a little bit now, yeah. because you found some people, and specifically these are a Hungarian Johannes Vitez. And an Italian who becomes Pope, Aenea uh, Silvio Piccolomini, who's Pius II, so mid-15th century. And these guys begin to talk about the Eastern Empire. This is after it has fallen. It no longer exists, right? Just to be yeah. clear. It's after the fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans. And they begin to call it the Imperium Orientale, the Eastern Empire, which is, well, for Western usage, a kind of new departure here. So... What was the context in which they said this and what did they mean by that? Yeah, so um, these two figures, uh, Piccolomini is well known, as you point out, he becomes Pius II and is sort of famous as the most enthusiastic crusading pope. Hmm. He, he failed to raise a crusade, but he was really enthusiastic about it throughout his whole life. Um, and then uh, Johannes Vitesse, who is a Hungarian archbishop who almost nobody uh, knows anything about. Um, but they have some important connections, uh, both in their training. They're both, uh, you know, they're both archbishops at the time. They're both advisors to Central European monarchs. Uh, Piccolomini is an advisor to uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III, and Vitesse is an advisor to the uh, Hungarian king, uh, Ladislaus V, I think. Um, and so they're both very concerned about the situation in Central Europe after the Ottoman conquest of um, after the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople in 1453, um, and they're really engaged in this uh, project of using uh, kind of you know politically oriented um, Latinity, this kind of you know humanist uh, Latin, um, especially Latin oratory. Um, in service of, of politics. Um, and so as Christians all over kind of Western and Central Europe, this is in 1453, 1454, are kind of wringing their hands about the ascendant Ottomans and what that means. Uh, these two are really intimately involved in trying to get people 
fired up about going on crusade to retake the city of Constantinople. And Piccolomini in particular, because he's Frederick III's um, right-hand man, is really deeply involved in organizing um, a meeting of all of the important figures in the Holy Roman Empire. I just point out that like the Holy Roman Empire is actually, although it is also called the Roman Empire, is quite different um, structurally from uh, the Byzantine Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, it's a kind of loose confederation of bishops and princes and cities that are all sort of notionally subject to the Holy Roman Empire, but really have their own agendas and commitments and grievances and alliances. Um, so anyway, Piccolomini wants to get all of the stakeholders in the Holy Roman Emperor to get uh, Holy Roman Empire together at these uh, at a meeting called an Imperial Diet. Um, it's a cere ceremonial meeting where where all these uh, stakeholders meet and they conduct the business of the empire. Um, and so he arranges three of these meetings uh, between 1454 and 1455 um, all to meet and try to find consensus around this uh, plan to you know, mount a crusade to reconquer Constantinople. And so where we see the term appear uh, really for the first time in centuries is in a series of letters and especially orations that Piccolomini and uh, Vitesse give in these um you know these these big imperial diets um yeah so so we, yeah it's it's uh, very explicitly right an attempt to get people jazzed about crusading it's an attempt to use new uh charged i mean it's new but old right retro language uh, this this kind of charged vocabulary to overcome what is an incredible reluctance among basically everyone to join together to 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 mount a crusade so how exactly would it do that in the sense that, so where does the term Eastern Empire, what does it allude to that would have emotive ties that might fire up Christian princes to go on a crusade? Um, you know, what are they, because they're not calling it the Eastern Roman Empire, they're just calling it the Eastern Empire. What are they implying and what are they not saying when they call it that? Like, what is the emotional valence of that term? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so I think that the... Uh, I think it's significant that these are humanist uh, bishops, right? So there are people who are steeped in, um, you know, the Latin literature of antiquity and late antiquity. And that's, you know, late antiquity, that's where we see the emergence of this term. I mean, you know, for, for people who, uh, who, who don't know, in the fourth century, um, the Roman Empire is kind of on an ad hoc basis and then more formally divided between rulers uh, of the Western provinces, even though they're not in Rome at the time, and rulers of the Eastern provinces. And that really becomes uh, permanent, maybe not formalized, but permanent after the death of Theodosius I in 395. So he leaves one son uh, under the uh, regency of Stilicho in the West, uh, Norius, and then another son, Arcadius, uh, in, in Constantinople. And thereafter, there are emperors on each side of the empire until the end of the fifth century. Um, and so what we see in the fifth century is that writers now are starting to distinguish between the events in these two sort of ostensibly related uh, mm. parts of the empire that are increasingly independent and doing their own things uh, as the Imperium Occidentale, the Western Empire, and the Imperium Orientale. So the Western Empire, obviously, that language has survived, and we use it still when we talk about 476, fall of the Western Roman Empire. Um, the, the language of the Eastern Empire 
also somewhat surviving, uh, surprisingly survives sort of the end of imperial authority in the West, so that in the 6th century, writers like Jordanes and Marcellinus Comes, who are in Constantinople, write about the Western, uh, sorry, the Eastern Empire, the Imperium Orientale. They never call it the Eastern Empire of the Romans or the Eastern Roman Empire, because you didn't have to say that. It, what, there was only one empire, this was it, and it was in the East. Um, and so in, uh, you know, basically in Latin historiography, that term is associated with this kind of moment in the history of the Roman Empire when there were kind of two parts that were related in some way and they had kind of co-equal rulers. And uh, and then also referred to kind of the, the rump the, the Eastern Roman rump that continues in Constantinople after. So a great example of this is in the 13th century, the late 13th century, this Dominican historian, Martin of Tropau, who probably is like the most popular and continued uh, Latin historian in the late Middle Ages. Um, so he says, when Nikephoros I uh, comes to power, um, at the very beginning of the ninth century, he says, and that was the moment that the Eastern Empire declined to nothing. So there's this idea that the Eastern Empire sort of exists in late antiquity, and then it kind of attenuates and disappears by the mm. early ninth century, which is right when Charlemagne is showing up. So mm. it it has all of this, um, this uh, association with uh, the Roman phase of the the empire right. and it has no it's never employed to describe um, the byzantine empire after the ninth century and so when these guys vitesse and piccolomini figures who have read deeply these uh late ancient uh historians erosius trudanis um when they use the language of imperium orientale they're not doing it casually they know that it suggests that you know, we're talking about this kind of part of the Roman Empire. Now, as to the question of why are they trying to do that, th this isn't the only kind of um, collective category that they appeal to. They they talk about sort of all of Christendom. They talk about uh, the race publica Christiana, the, the kind of Christian Republic or the Christian state. Um, they even talk at various points about Europa, though not quite that much. Um, and so to my mind, this is another kind of rhetorical move that is intended to get people to care more about this thing that happened in Constantinople, right? It's not just uh, a bad thing happened in a city that's really far away, that's full of like probably heretical Christians and it has, you know, doesn't seem like it has any effect on your life. It's like, this is part of the Roman empire and we should really care about it. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, everyone here in this diet, you claim to be subject to the Roman emperor. This is a part of the Roman empire. So that's the move that they are, trying to make, I think, by reviving this term that basically has gone into abeyance and hasn't been used in like 600 years. So when I was reading your analysis, I was struck by two things, or I had these the following two thoughts. Um, the first is that if you map out the places that were targeted by crusades from the beginning of the crusading mo movement down to the 15th century, it's pretty much a map of the Eastern Empire. Right. From Palestine, uh, Egypt, Constantinople, the big crusades in the Balkans in the 15th century. Right. The first crusade went right through Asia Minor, Antioch, Syria. Right? Like 
that is a map of the Eastern Empire. So crusading overlaps with the Eastern Empire. So I think this might just be very evocative from that point of view. Yeah. And the second thing that I thought was that this Eastern Empire label is almost like a like a probationary upgrade that the East gets subject to its being properly conquered and Catholicized, at which yeah. point it might actually become the Eastern Roman Empire, right? But it's like this kind of halfway um, amelioration of just being of the Greeks or of the whatever, because the... What's missing from their accounts, you point this out, I mean, very astutely, is references to the people who live there. Yeah. In other words, it's it's a completely Western concept, and we're going to go and we're going to impose it on them. And who knows, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they can be upgraded more after that. Anyway, sorry, those are just or two re, reactions. Or re-educated. Yeah. Yeah. No, no I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and it is quite significant in that sense that there's no reference to, you know, it's it, it's often the case in in the West. I mean, sometimes they talk about the Imperium Romanum, the Roman Empire, but a lot of times they talk about the Imperium Romanorum, the Empire of the Romans. Mm. There's no discussion of that here because the people remain Greeks. And what uh, Piccolomini and Vitesse really care about is the kind of symbolic ideological charge of the city and the history, the messy reality of the inhabitants and their sort of, uh, you know, competition over the, the same kind of ideological territory is best left to one side. So it is, you know, it's a it's a kind of language that that purports to offer some historic depth here, but in fact, it completely flattens out like the the history of the eastern mediterranean between you know the 5th or 6th mm -hmm. century and uh the the 15th century and just i mean just as um sort of an addendum here i would note that um you know one thing that's really telling i, I think is that when um piccolomini becomes pope pius ii he organizes a new congress at mantua in 1459 where he tries to get people excited again for a crusade and again like uh you know earlier people are mostly not that uh interested um but one of the people he hooks up with in his tenure as pope which lasts from 1458 to 1464 is thomas paleologus uh who uh. is uh, one of the two surviving members of the Byzantine imperial family, right? Mm -hmm. there, there are three in 1453, Thomas, Demetrius, and Constantine. Constantine dies in Constantinople in 1453. Demetrius casts his lot in with the Ottomans, and Thomas flees to the West. And he spends some time kind of like gadding about Italy, saying things like, oh, I'm the last surviving brother of the Byzantine emperor, like, some does someone want to give me some money or you know uh you know go, go me, fund me yeah a go fund me and so um you know piccolomini or pius ii um sort of uh adopts him as like he's a he's a kind of uh you know a protege in a way in fact he appears and there are these very famous uh frescoes in the libraria piccolomini in um siena and thomas Paleologus appears next to uh, Pius II. He's the only guy with a big beard and a, a 
kind of con conical hat. So um, yeah. Piccolomini, uh, Pius II sends letters of introduction around to kind of all of these cities in, in Italy saying, why don't you support my friend? But the 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 kind of the the package the mission that is being sold to people is never let's return him to Constantinople and install him as the new Byzantine emperor it's like let's send him back to the Peloponnese and he'll kind of start a guerrilla campaign and we'll eject the Ottomans so so it's like even though you have a member of the imperial family Piccolomini is not interested in reestablishing any kind of Byzantine monarchy mm -hmm. in Constantinople what he cares about is um, the associations of, of the city of Constantinople. So in your research on the 15th century, did you find that this usage by um, Piccolomini and, and Vitez, did it shift Western perceptions? Like, did it have a real impact? Or are we talking about like idiosyncratic usage of these two particular individuals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question and one that I uh, have thought about a lot. I think it's a little bit of both. Certainly, it's idiosyncratic and responsive to local conditions, right? The threat of the Ottomans to uh, to Central Europe, um, which is sort of viscerally felt by these uh, the two monarchs that these guys are serving, the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Hungary. Um, who were too weak to kind of defend themselves. They needed allies. So that's the kind of local uh, context for the use of this language. But I will say that um, Piccolomini in particular, before he becomes um, Pope, and then after he becomes Pope, is particularly influential as a crusade orator. And it's because he's just he's a he's a great or he's a great orator. Um, mm. His speeches are jazzy and dynamic and exciting and they're full of you know kind of lurid details and i don't know passionate uh mm -hmm. you know expostulation and um and they really become models for this sort of burgeoning uh kind of subgenre of of oratory humanist oratory which is the crusade oration and so uh, two orations in particular the one he the first one uh, he gives at the uh, diet in Frankfurt in 1454 which is called Constantinopolaklades the uh, the speeches are all known by their first sort of words in latin this is like constantinopolitan slaughter and it's like a two hour oration and it's like, he has a great uh, mm. a, a account of the reception i think in his commentaries where he's like uh, after i after i gave the oration there was uh, stunned silence or something like that, which yes. can go one of two ways. Um, and then another oration that he gives at Mantua, uh, cum bellum hodie. Uh, anyway, those two orations become basically the most popular examples of crusade oratory. Right. And because the term appears in those, right. it then gets kind of exported through, through his authority into a lot of other places. So you know, during his uh, tenure as Pope, you see uh, crusade orators come and talk about the Imperium Orientale. Um, you see it appear in in papal bowls of, of subsequent Pope Sixtus IV, I think, has one. Um, I think it's important to recognize that, I, I mean, what I think is that those figures are just copying this sort of influential archaizing language from a kind of master of the genre. They are not themselves necessarily embracing his kind of uh, idiosyncratic ideological mm. or rhetorical mm. program. But it helps disseminate that language into 
the kind of uh, you know the the literary bloodstream, so that then people could look back and say, oh yes, what's a you know what's a sort of um, of a florid way to refer to Constantinople, ah, the Eastern Empire, you know. Um, so I think that's really important. And then, you know, going forward, certainly in, from the 16th century onward, you see Imperium Orientale show up in works of Byzantine scholarship that explicitly operate in a framework where they're saying, wow. ah, yes, the Byzantines were part of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I think it has kind of knock-on effects, even if it's not exactly what they intended. It is important to note that like their immediate goal, let's let's all go on crusade because this is a part of the Roman Empire, is an absolute failure, right? Nobody takes the bait. Nobody is persuaded by this, uh, you know, the the Eastern Empire um, argument. So um, yeah, but it but it has it it continues to sort of survive and then is picked up in in interesting places in the 16th century. Well, let's jump ahead a couple of generations and we can close with this other figure whom I found really far out there. Um, so we're jumping ahead to the reign of the German emperor Maximilian I. Um, and so he lived in the years around like 1500. And you discuss all of the ways in which he engaged with the legacy of the Eastern Empire. There, there are many and they're very interesting. But let's focus on this one figure from his reign, who's this polymath professor, Cuspianus. And he wrote a history of the Roman emperors, which I had actually scrolled through because it's online somewhere. I don't know where, but I found <laughs> it online. I was scrolling through and scrolling and scrolling and my eyes were widening. You know, the more the, the later I got is like, what is he doing? This is so heretical. So tell us what he did. Yeah, so he's really significant because he is the first, um, you know, humanist historian, uh, the the first historian of any kind, I think, in the in the Latin tradition, to write a history of the Roman Empire that very explicitly set up a kind of equivalence between the emperors in the West and the emperors in the East, all the way up until the present day, which for him is the early 16th century. Now, there was a humanist in uh, uh, Venice uh, around the same time who's doing a kind of similar project. It's much shorter, a much worse history. I mean, it's a school book, um, Ignacio, uh, but it's also very traditional in the sense that he's there's like one book that's about sort of the ancient and late ancient phase of the empire then there's one book where he's like oh the things in the east they were terrible these guys are the worst then uh, then the last book starts with charlemagne and he's like ah at last we can breathe deeply again the (laughs) air of freedom and virtue or i don't know something like that so i mean he still has like a very clear hierarchy even though he's ostensibly writing sort of a history of byzantine emperors um so what's really distinctive about Cuspinianus is extremely long. I mean, this is like a five, six hundred page of yeah, Latin history it was. That, that goes from uh, from Caesar all the way up um, to, uh, to to Maximilian and, and Constantine the Eleventh, and um, and he very explicitly says, "Look, the Roman Empire." has always been divided. So the fact that there's an empire in the East in Constantinople and an empire in the West is no surprise. That's just the way it's always been. And so here I'm going to kind of interleave, uh, you know, some emperors in the West and then some emperors in the East and then emperors in the West and then emperors in the East. 
And so the, the, the kind of framework that he adopts, as well as some of the specific things he does in the text, are really radical and constitute just a, a profound departure from the way people thought about the history of um, the Roman Empire in the medieval West, in, in, in medieval Latin historiography. But you can see how he's like taking what is, you know, kind of a uh, uh, useful rhetoric that is totally undeveloped, used by people like Piccolomini and Vitesse, and he's giving it some real historical um, uh, depth. And that is, yeah, it's a it's a remarkable um, project. There's a whole series. There's a very fun kind of backstory about um, how he is able to do this. You know, one of the one of the challenges uh, in Vienna um, is that basically nobody like people legitimately didn't know about kind of what had happened in the Eastern yeah. Mediterranean between like the 10th century and the 15th century. Yeah. There's a guy who is, um, you know, he's a humanist, the kind of generation before um, uh, Cuspinianus, um, Johannes Fuchsmagen. I'm writing an article about him now. And he's also very interested in the history of the Byzantine emperors and he's collecting coins and he's trying to sort of create an imperial chronology through these gold coins that he's collecting. <laughs> Wow. And he has to sort of say at some point, he's like, okay, well, I don't have coins, but here are all the emperors in the East. And he gets down to John the first Zemiskis, right? The end of the 10th century. And he's like, I don't know. After that, like this Italian guy says, these are people who came next. And they're like 15 names, right? Out of the 30 emperors that uh, follow John the first Zemiskis. So they literally, I mean, that's, you know, probably five years before uh, Cuspinianus is writing. So in Vienna, they literally had no idea who the Byzantine emperors were, let alone the kind of political events uh, or sort of, you know, religious developments in the Eastern Mediterranean. So part of what's really interesting about Cuspinianus is that he's a diplomat for Maximilian. He's going back and forth from Vienna to Budapest all the time. And when he's in Budapest, he finds this Byzantine manuscript. It's a 14th century copy of... Um, the Chronicle of John Zonaras, which is a universal chronicle that goes from creation down to the uh, death of Alexius I, uh, generally, at the, in the early 12th century. And this is the text that allows him to fill in this kind of huge chunk of Byzantine history that he didn't know anything about. I mean, it gives him the names, it gives him the dates. Okay, yes. I, well, actually, Zonaras very famously doesn't provide any dates except for the date uh, mm -hmm. of of Alexios's death. So he's a little fuzzy on the dates, but it gives him names and developments and, you know, the, uh, you know, the goings on in the church and, and various other things. So that's a, 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 this kind of critical moment where all of a sudden this kind of world opens up to him and that allows him to write these like long biographies of Byzantine emperors. And as you see, when you read those biographies, they are often just literally yeah. translated yeah. Uh, from yeah. the Greek to uh, Latin. Um, it was, uh, yeah, different standards, I guess, <laughs> for what constituted scholarship. But uh, Yes, but, so I had two reactions when I was yeah. scrolling through the 500 pages of this text. The first is that he paid more attention to these rulers than Gibbon did. Yeah. <laughs> right, for one thing, right? So you know that famous chapter where Gibbon just is kind of like, oh, I can't believe that. I'm just going to race through these because I'm not too interested in them. Yeah. And the second is that he, for the first time in like almost a thousand years in the Western tradition, he's actually approximating a sort of quasi-Roman view of the imperial position 
that can be shared, right? It, it doesn't have to be just one. You can have an emperor in the West, an emperor in the East, and they're in parallel and fine. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting. And because that's a question I always had about the earlier Western medieval notions, like why does there have to be only one emperor? Like you could have, I think in Constantinople, sometimes you had up to seven. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> And also in in the history of the Roman Empire that they still considered canonical, there were often multiple emperors yes. at once. The whole yes. idea that that like there has to be only one is yeah. is I don't know a sort of weird development. I suspect it has kind of theological and apocalyptic, mm. but um, mm. yeah. Right. yeah, Nate, um, we're out of time. This was fascinating. There's a lot more that we could have talked about. Any final thoughts about the imperial tradition, translatio, emperors, any of this? I, th I think that the thing that's really striking about um, this kind of trajectory from Piccolomini, who first starts to explore what if we thought about the empire is actually, uh, you know, what if we rejected the medieval traditions that marginalize the empire in Constantinople from the kind of Roman succession, and we instead imagine that it's part of that tradition. So that starts in a very tentative way with Piccolomini, and then you know, it's realized in a much fuller way with um, Cuspinianus. I think that part of what is really striking uh, about those two, though, um, is the ways that they, I don't know, they, 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 in some ways, they're, they're a kind of uh, maybe a recuperation or, or a validation of the kind of Byzantine kind of self-definition, Byzantine political ideology. Um, but in other ways, it seems like sort of an early phase of kind of Western colonization of um, the whole idea of Byzantine Empire. I mean, certainly any, you know, inhabitant of the empire from the 12th century reading uh, Cuspinianus's text would sort of think like, yeah, what is this shared? Like, there's only one Roman Empire and it's in Constantinople. That's it. Mm. That's the only place that it exists. Um and I do think that there's a degree to which, uh, you know, that has continued to kind of shape the way we think about the the Byzantine world. You know, it still has this kind of uneasy collocation with narratives of the Western Empire that that we tend to kind of ground in, um, you know, in 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 Western Europe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's something very kind of prescient and uh, and and. Um, fascinating about the the project that Cuspinianus is engaged in. Yeah, I get I was getting the sense that they were saying something like, okay, you can play the game, but you have to play by our rules. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. And that always makes me feel like, okay, I'm gonna rewrite the rules, guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. You yeah, you can be Roman, but you you're not like the Roman emperors. You're just yeah, yeah. the Roman emperor. Huh. Well yeah. Nate, thank you so much for coming on. This is really interesting stuff. And I hope this comes out in print very soon because this material is not very well known. I, and I had very, very murky idea that there was anything quite so interesting going on in, in this like late 15th, early 16th century. So I'm really glad you found it and you're going to pull it out into the light. So thank you very much, Anthony. It's just a, a real delight to talk about it with you. Thanks. Take care.